everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're continuing on the grunge saga, talking about Alice in Chains. So excited. I gotta say, right off the bat though, after doing this research on Alice in Chains, there's a lot to talk about. I'm really excited, so I figure we might as well just jump on right into it. And I think what a better way to start it off than with frontman Lane Staley. So Lane was born on August 22, 1967 in Kirkland, Washington. His parents are Phil and Nancy, and he joined a rhythm band at about two or three years old in Bellevue, Washington, which, like, what rhythm band do you join at two or three? Like, is this with some friends or family? I wasn't sure what that was exactly, but that's just something that I researched. And he said that he had quite like a decent middle class upbringing. He wasn't poor by any means, but he also wasn't extremely well off. He was very middle class, so he was fine in terms of that kind of standing. His family was pretty, pretty good. At nine, he said he wrote um, in a book. I believe it was a Dr. Seuss book that said, when I grow up, I want to be. And he wrote that he wanted to be a singer, which, of course, that was his legacy. That was his destiny. At age seven, though, his parents divorced, and at this point, after the divorce, he was raised by his mother and his stepfather, Jim Elmer. While he was attending Meadowdale High School, he took on his stepfather's last name for a brief period of time, and so he briefly went by Lane Elmer, which doesn't really sound as catchy as Lane Staley, does it? <laughs> Maybe that's why he changed it back. That's quite funny. Something, though, that was really, really fascinating about Lane's background that I didn't know, and also I had no idea what this was either. Um, Lane was raised as a Christian scientist, which is a sect of Christianity. Apparently, it's from the new religious movement. It was formed in the 1800s in Boston, Massachusetts. So a quote that Lane made about religion and the impact that religion had on his life was such. Quote, I think there's a lot of people who are scared of life and living, and they want to make sure that they get to heaven or whatever. I try to stay away from it as much as I can. I was raised in the church until I was 16, and I've disagreed with their beliefs as long as I can remember. So when I had the choice, I chose not to believe in anything apart from myself. Which, yes, 100%, that's an amazing takeaway from that quote. His first introduction to music was apparently going through his parents' music collection. And I know from myself, I've done this before when I was young. He cited Black Sabbath as his main influence in his music. But other influences were Deep Purple, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, Anthrax, Judas Priest, Rainbow, Twisted Sister, David Bowie, Prince, and Van Halen. So there's quite an eclectic music taste there that kind of spans a lot of genres which i like that's that's cool that he has that wide range to be influenced by someone like prince and david bowie but then also anthrax <laughs> i thought that was really cool by his early teens he was already in several kind of low-key you know not doing a whole lot uh, glam bands right so they weren't like making it they weren't like making a big name for themselves i think they were just kind of jamming so at this point in these glam bands, he was playing the drums. But again, it was always emphasized that he really wanted to be a singer. So obviously playing drums professionally was not something Lance Staley was going to do. And we all know this. His first, I guess, if you would consider this a big break, 
uh, music-wise, is in 1984, he joined some students from another high school in the area in a band called Sleaze. And Sleaze, according to Lane, was a band where they dressed in drag and they played speed metal. So the band formed in 1984. In 1986, the band changed their name from Sleaze to Alice in Chains. But the big thing to differentiate here, it wasn't Alice in Chains. It was Alice in Chains, like an apostrophe, like how Guns N' Roses are Guns N' Roses. So that's the distinction there. They changed the band name from Sleaze to Alice in Chains. And so they performed for one year and recorded two demo tapes before breaking up in 1987. So again, they didn't do a whole lot. They didn't make it big with this band. But without this band, we would not have Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley being introduced for the first time, which is quite monumental. And this happened in 1987 at a show that Sleaze was doing in Tacoma Little Theater. So Jerry was in the crowd. He was watching and he was really taken by Lane's vocals. Jerry has said like in later interviews that Lane's voice is kind of how Jerry always wanted to sing. Like it was quite inspirational to see, you know, Lane going up there on stage and really singing his heart out. That was something that really inspired Jerry, which is cool. And so now Jerry Cantrell enters the picture. And so now we're going to go back and we're going to talk about Jerry's upbringing. And Jerry's upbringing is quite a colorful one. There's a lot of stuff that happens with Jerry that influences the future of the band Alice in Chains. So Jerry Cantrell was born March 8th, 1966 in Tacoma, Washington. His parents were Gloria and Jerry Sr., and his father was a combat veteran in the Vietnam War. And he said that on his mother's side, they're very musically inclined. Um, his mother is, well, his was. His mother was an organist and a melodica player. His grandmother was also a melodica player, and she also played the accordion. Jerry has actually said that his mother wanted to be a famous musician. Jerry kind of took that on when she passed, but we'll go kind of more into that in, in the future. Jerry's first childhood memory of meeting his father, he said, was when his dad returned from the war when he was about three. So I can't imagine how stressful that must be to not really know your dad like that. And of course, the war, that played a big part in the reason why his parents divorced when he was about seven. So at this point on, after the divorce, he was raised by his mom and his grandmother in Tacoma, Washington. And so his his upbringing now at this point is quite poor. So poor, in fact, that they were living on welfare and food stamps. So they were not doing the best financially, let's just say that. At some point, him and his mom moved back to Spanaway, Washington, where he grew up, to attend Spanaway Lake High School. And in school, he was a member of the choir and he became the choir president. So at this point, he got his first guitar in sixth grade. But at this time, he played clarinet. So he was kind of bouncing around between quite a different array of musical instruments. His mother actually at this point was dating a guitar player. And her boyfriend was teaching Jerry a few chords. Like he gave him an acoustic guitar and he was teaching him just a few basic chords, Jerry was saying. And according to him his mother's boyfriend was like does jerry know how to play the guitar like because he he picked up on these chords so quick like he knows what he's doing and his mom was like nope he's never played guitar before 
So the boyfriend really was like, yeah, you should get him a guitar because he picked up on those chords really quick. So in his mid-teens, though, this is where he says he bought his first electric guitar at a swap meet, which was a Korean-made Fender Stratocaster. And what I thought was really interesting that's been so different from these other um, grunge artists that I've been researching for this podcast, you know, a lot of those grunge artists, they kind of grew up on harder rock or they influenced punk rock as their main influence. Like that's what they were really inspired by. Jerry predominantly grew up with country music and that's like a 180 from everyone else that I researched so far. He, he says that they played that music all the time. That's kind of the backbone of his music knowledge and where he got a lot of inspiration from at that point. It's funny because he also considered himself half Yankee and half redneck. So that just goes to show like how ingrained this country music was within him. But obviously, you know, rock music predominantly took over for him at some point. Country music... I think has always kind of been in his blood though, but rock music did take over because he cited some guitarists that inspired him were Jimmy Page, Ace Frehley, Tommy Iommi, Angus Young, Jimi Hendrix, Glenn Topton, David Gilmour, Nancy Wilson, and Eddie Van Halen, just to name a few. He also said that bands like Fleetwood Mac, Heart, Rush, and Soundgarden were also major influences on his own music. In 1985, he was attending a winter semester of college, but he dropped out to move to Dallas, Texas briefly to join a band with some friends. While there, he worked a job doing asbestos abatement in Dallas and Houston, which I can't even imagine doing that job. My gosh, must be very hard work. He also at this time worked at a music store called Arnold and Morgan Music Company, and he bought what he considered his first real electric guitar which is a 1984 G&L Rampage. In Dallas, Texas, he met an early formation of the band Pantera and became friends with Dimebag Daryl and Vinnie Paul. So he was only there for a short period of time in Texas. Um, he moved back to Tacoma sometime in 1985 um, or 1986. And at this time, he started a band called Diamond Lie. And he started playing in Diamond Light at concerts in Tacoma and Seattle, hoping to get a record deal of some kind from any kind of record label. So the band Diamond Lie that he was in recorded a four-song demo tape at London Bridge Studio. He was still living in poverty, though, so around, you know, age 20, he was working multiple uh, part-time jobs to help pay the rent. One job in particular that he noted that he did was throwing boxes of frozen fish in a warehouse. That just popped in the image for me of Rocky. You know how Rocky in the movie took on like hauling frozen meat <laughs> in the warehouse? Like that's totally what I imagined. But aside from these part-time jobs, he filled his time playing guitar and trying to jam with any band that he could. Unfortunately, and quite sadly, actually, this is extremely tragic. His grandmother died of cancer in October of 1986. But that's not it. Six months later... In April of 1987, his mother also died of pancreatic cancer. So now, you know, the women he was living with, his mother and his grandmother, two extremely huge musical catalysts in his life growing up, passed away within six months of each other. He was only 21 years old. Like, where was he going to go now at this point? Friends and people that knew him well at this point in his life said that he fell into a very deep depression. 
how do you handle losing not only your grandmother, but your mother of the same illness, of the same disease of cancer? At a young age of 21, while he's still figuring his life out, I mean, that's just so tragic. It is kind of faded because three weeks after his mom died, um, on April 11th in 1987, he went to see Alice in Chains play live at the Tacoma Little Theater, like I already mentioned before, right? This is where he saw Lane for the first time, just seeing he wasn't talking to him or meeting him yet at this point. The meeting, though, with Lane came later at a party that Lane was at in Seattle around August of that year, 1987. Obviously, having lost his grandmother and his mother, Jerry was homeless. He had nowhere really to go. And he said he was kicked out of family's houses, so he had nowhere to go. Well, he met Lane at this party. They hit it off really well. And Lane invited him to stay at the rehearsal studio, the music bank, that Lane was using to record his music at. And shortly after this point, lo and behold, Alice in Chains, Lane's band, breaks up. So now we're going into the section where it's the formative years of Alice in Chains, how it all came together. So while Jerry and Lane were living at the Music Bank studio, Jerry was looking to form a new band, right? So Lane gave Jerry the phone number of Melinda Starr, who was the sister of Mike Starr. Melinda was dating drummer Sean Kinney at the time, which is like such an interesting, like, how can that, that's just so perfect to me. It's like the perfect setup. So the backstory on how Sean Kinney met Lane in the first place was Sean met Lane while his band Sleaze was playing at the Alki Beach. And Sean says that Lane was cool, but the band sucked. <laughs> like, oof, the band was not good. Um, he offered Lane to be the drummer for the band because that's how horrible the band was apparently like lane was good but the rest of them poof not good so sean at this time didn't have a phone number to give to lane so he gave lane his girlfriend's number and so that's how that whole transaction happened where lane gives jerry melinda's phone number so jerry called up sean and the two had a meeting sean and melinda went to the music bank and listened to jerry's demo tape he also mentioned that he needed a bass player because if he needed a band, you know, who was going to play the bass? And so he said, Jerry said, that he had Mike Starr in mind. He said that he played with Mike before in a band called Gypsy Rose. It was kind of similar to Sleaze. It was kind of like a glam metal band. Um, again, didn't really go anywhere. It was just kind of a, a thing that happened between the time that he was homeless and before he met Lane. So it all kind of happened around this time. And so like when they were there, you know, Sean pointed to Melinda and it's like, oh, well, that's his sister. <laughs> like I'm dating his sister. So a few days later, Jerry called Mike and the three of them, him, Jerry and Sean, played together at the music bank. So they were now set in stone, like, right, here's the three of us. But now we need a singer. And so Lane, at this point in time, he wasn't in Alice in Chains anymore. They had broken up. So he was in a funk band, which is also an interesting take, like a funk band out of all things. So in this funk band that Lane was in, they were looking for a guitarist for the band. And so Jerry hopped on as like a side man to the band. And so this whole time, Jerry was trying to get Lane in his band <laughs> but you know lane just wasn't really interested he was like yeah no i don't nah like i'm good kind of thing so 
a really funny anecdote that Jerry and Sean were mentioning in an interview was Jerry, Sean, and Mike were interviewing singers for the band, and they were interviewing these really terrible singers at the music bank in front of Lane, it, just kind of to be like, hey, Lane, you know, do you get the hint here? Uh, one such audition was that a male stripper was singing really horribly, and apparently that was the last straw for Lane. He's like, all right, you're going to do this? You're going to bring this guy in here? All right, I'm joining the band. <laughs> so at this point in time, now Lane joins the band, and now they are what is known as Alice in Chains. So needless to say, Lane's really well-off funk band broke up in 1987 and he joined the rest of the boys. And so now that they were formally a band, they needed to come up with a name for the band. They had thought about the name Mothra for a hot minute and then they also thought about using Diamond Line, which was again the name of Jerry's previous band, but they adopted using Alice in Chains and this is when they changed it from Alice in Chains with the with the an apostrophe to what we know it now as Alice in Chains. Lane apparently went to his former bandmates and he asked them if he could get the permission to use the band name. And they were like, yep, that's cool with us. So he got their blessing. And that's where it all began right from there. And so this little anecdote as well is kind of an interesting one. At this point, you know, they were trying to get gigs. They did play as Diamond Live for a hot minute, though. Uh, before they went to Alice in Chains. They were playing concerts, trying to get, you know, noticed. Jerry apparently went to a Guns N' Roses concert at the Seattle Center in 1987, and he took an Alice in Chains demo tape to the band backstage, to Guns N' Roses. I don't know how he met Axl Rose at the time, but he, he did. He met with Axl Rose, and he handed him the tape, but Jerry noticed as he was leaving, he turned around and he saw that Axel threw the tape in the trash. What a, what, a, what a loser, right? Like, that's just so mean. But what's ironic was years later in 2016, Guns N' Roses chose Alice in Chains to be the opening band of their reunion tour. So who got the last laugh in that one, you know? The band eventually got around to record their final demo that was called the Treehouse Tapes. And it was going around being passed around in the hands of music managers, Kelly Curtis and Susan Silver. And Susan Silver is a really big name in the industry. She also managed Soundgarden at the time and Mother Love Bone at the time. So Susan and Kelly, when they got their hands on these tapes, they passed the tapes on to Columbia Records. And after three months of negotiations, they signed with Columbia Records on September 11th, 1989. So now at this point, it was official. They had a major label interested in them just with these demo tapes. So that is huge for them. They also recorded another demo tape that was untitled, but some believe it was called the We Die Young EP or like the demo tape. Uh, they recorded this in the span of three months in 1989. It had songs like We Die Young, Bleed the Freak, and Sea of Sorrow. Whew, let me just wipe my brow for that one. Whew. Are you following along? That's, that's a lot of information. Now, they have the record label. They have all the members together. So now we go on to where they create Facelift, which was their debut record. So the band actually became a top priority for the label um, when they released their EP, We Die Young. 
And so after this success, the label was really rushing the band to produce their debut album with Dave Jordan as the producer. So Facelift was recorded at the London Bridge Studios in Seattle and at Capitol Records in Hollywood from December 1989 to April 1990. And another interesting fact is drummer Sean Kenny played this album with a broken hand, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Like, I can't imagine the pain he must have been in to play the hard drums that he played on that album with a broken hand. What an absolute legend. This is what he had to say about that experience. Quote, I almost didn't play on the record. They started rehearsing with the drummer from Mother Love Bone, Greg Gilmore. I was sitting there playing with one hand, guiding him through it. Dave Jordan came in and they started to try to do it. He was like, screw it, pull the plug, this is not going to be the same. Luckily, we took a tiny bit of time off. I had that cast on for a while and was like, I can't miss this. I cut my cast off in the studio and kept a bucket of ice by the drum set. Kept my hand iced down and played with a broken hand. What an absolute beast. (laughs) I can't even begin to say. Jerry has said that he intended the sound of the album to have a moody aura as a direct result of the brooding atmosphere and feel of Seattle at the time. On the song Man in the Box, Jerry has said, quote, The whole beat and grind of that is when we started to find ourselves. It helped Alice become what it was. The idea of using the voice box for the song came from producer Dave Jordan, who listened to Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer on the radio as he was heading to the studio one day. So Jerry has said that the concept for the album cover was that he wanted it to be an embryotic type thing representing the birth of the band. But over time, the cover started to become a little more scary looking and fit the theme of the album a lot more, obviously, right? You know, they intended it to be, you know, symbolistic of this is our first album, you know, this is the birth of the band. But yeah, definitely over over the years, yeah, that album cover, I've always thought it's quite unnerving, to be honest. Uh, but it's really, really cool. And so this is where photographer Rocky Schenk comes into the picture. Uh, pun intended, I guess. So Rocky becomes a major part of the band as he goes on to produce a lot of their music videos and their album covers for the future. And he does a fantastic job as well, by the way. Executing their vision and seeing it come to life is seriously phenomenal. The label didn't give them a big budget at all to do the photo shoot for the album cover. But Rocky was willing to make it work because he really liked the band a lot and he wanted to see what he could do with the limited restraints that were placed on them. So the first day of shooting was May 2nd, 1990 at the swimming pool of the Oakwood Apartments in Burbank. There was a sheet of plastic covering the top of the pool that had band members, uh, you know, underneath. And so they had to swim under the plastic and rise to the surface and breathe as they emerge, creating this really distorted look in their faces. So one photo from the shoot had Lane being hoisted up by the other band members, and it was used for the cover of the We Die Young single. But the photo that would be on the actual album was of Mike Starr, the bassist. So that photo on the cover is Mike Starr. And after seeing that photo, That's when the band actually decided to name the album Facelift. 
So the album was released on August 21st, 1990, and this was the first album from the grunge scene to reach top 50 on the Billboard 200. And it was the first to be certified gold on September 11th, 1991. So Facelift actually sold under 40,000 copies, so it wasn't actually an instant success. But it became a major success when MTV was featuring the music video for Man in the Box on their regular rotation. So the music video really helped propel the band because that song is absolutely amazing. And so when people were hearing that song on MTV and seeing the video, they were buying the album just in large quantities at that point. So Man in the Box hit number 18 on the mainstream rock charts. And in six weeks, Facelift sold over 400,000 copies. And it has eventually been certified double platinum selling over 2 million copies. So it wasn't an instant success, but it, it became one quite soon after that point. Jerry dedicated the album to his grandmother and close friend Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone. Andrew Wood is considered really the first major pioneer of the grunge scene, and he was so young when he died um, of a drug overdose in 1990, and they were very good friends. So this was such a funny uh, thing that I learned as well. Sammy Hager said that he invited Alice in Chains to join them on a tour with Van Halen after he saw the Man in the Box music video. But what was funny, he only really invited Alice in Chains on there because when he saw what this new music was and how big this new band was, he invited them kind of out of fear because it was competition. He said it was like oh, well, you know, we don't want them to get bigger than us kind of thing, so we'll keep them close by. But also, like, it was a weird kind of thing that he said. Van Halen was like, yeah, join us. Why the hell not? <laughs> so they had a concert at the famous Moore Theater in Seattle on December 22nd, 1990. That concert was recorded and released on July 30th, 1991 as Live Facelift. And in early 1991, they landed a spot on the Clash of Titans tour with Anthrax, Megadeth, and Slayer, opening themselves up to a big metal audience. And this is where they really opened themselves up for a lot of scrutiny with these audiences. You know, here's Alice in Chains opening for these huge metal bands. And so it was said by a member of Anthrax that the crowds were just pelting them with beer bottles and they went to buy more beer so they could throw beer bottles on stage at them like it was just it was horrible that Allison Chains was getting like a lot of negative attention from the crowds but eventually that turned around it was just those first couple of concerts that they were like who the hell is or, or, like who the hell is Allison Chains opening for my favorite band Anthrax like how dare these people come on you know what I mean like but obviously, when they heard Man in the Box, they went to buy those albums. So it's quite a funny turnaround. But that's kind of what happened with Facelift. So Facelift really propelled them into the forefront of the grunge scene. So now we're taking kind of a detour, kind of like a 180, actually, with their next release, which is the Sap EP. And so after the facelift tours and the tours that they were doing with these other bands. Allison Chains went into the recording studio and recorded five acoustic songs instead of making demos for their next album, Dirt, like they intended. 
And so this was a total kind of it's it's kind of through the record label a little because they weren't really sure what this could end up being because here they had come off of the high of facelift this huge rock album and then here they are making an acoustic ep but they were extremely dead set on making this and a cool fact about this was Sean Kinney said that he had a dream about making an EP and calling it Sap. And so they decided they're not messing with fate. They're just going with it. And honestly, surprisingly enough, Sap was incredibly well received. It released on February 4th, 1992. And it was released with Nirvana's Nevermind being at the top of the charts at the time. So with Nevermind and the Sap EP and then having just come off of the facelift album... It created an extremely wide popularity for grunge music. And Sap was certified gold within two weeks. So that goes to show you can have a band like Alice in Chains do a total 180, create an entirely acoustic EP, and have it be so popular. So the band was saying that this really showed them that they could do whatever they want, that they were trusted to make whatever music they want, and that helped them creatively in their future projects that it, it, it showed them that they could do what they wanted to do they didn't have to um limit themselves in a certain kind of music they could kind of branch out and do what they wanted which was nice so jerry was the lead vocalist for the song brother and wilson of heart actually joined the band for the songs brother and am i inside also on the ep features mark arm of Mudhoney and Chris Cornell of Sarn Garden. Those two shared vocals with Lane and Jerry on the song Right Turn. And so on that song where they were playing, it was credited as Alice Mudgarden on the liner notes of the EP. And so a fun fact, right, from this time, before Dirt came about, but after Sap was released, Alice in Chains was featured in the movie Singles. It was a movie made by Cameron Crowe. They were actually literally in the movie and they appeared on the movie soundtrack. They appeared like in the movie as like a bar band that was just kind of playing to the crowd. But they created the song Wood specifically for the soundtrack for the movie. Um, and that's where the music video came from, too. They created that for the movie. So the band began recording Dirt in March of 1992 with producer Dave Jordan again. So he wanted to return for their second album. This was recorded at the El Dorado Recording Studio in Burbank, the London Bridge Studio in Seattle, and one-on-one studios in L.A. from April to July of 1992. And this was also huge as well. Like, they took some time to record the Facelift album, but they hardly took a lot of time at all to record Dirt because they had already at that point really knew their audience and they knew what their music was now at this point and they knew what they wanted to do. Whereas with Facelift, that was their first album. They were taking that, you know, and experimenting a little bit, trying to figure things out. But now with Dirt, they have everything figured out. So it takes them a lot less time to create the album. Interestingly enough, though, the album was recorded during the L.A. riots that erupted following, you know, the the Rodney King case, which I think we all know. The riots started on their first day of recording, but it was a scary situation in the band up and left Seattle to kind of hang out somewhere else for a few days while the riots kind of were starting to calm down. 
the band was actually watching TV. They were watching the news of the acquittal of the four LAPD officers in the case when this started happening. They tried to get out of the city, and they took Slayer singer Tom Aria with them. I don't know why they took him with them, uh, but they took him, and they went to the Joshua Tree Desert for about four days until things started to calm down. And so now at this point, too, as they were recording Dirt, Blaine was into his heroin use. He had previously checked himself in and out of rehab for this, but Blaine wasn't the only one in the band that was dealing with drug issues. Mike Starr, we all know Mike Starr had major drug issues, and Sean Kenny was dealing with some too. But Blaine started going down, at this point in time, a really bad path with drugs. So I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit and talk about... Lane's relationship with girlfriend Demery Perot, because she was a really pivotal person in his life. So Lane and Demery had met in 1988 at a store called Saturdays in Washington that Demery worked in, and they started dating that summer. So they were quite smitten with each other. They were considered soulmates, and their first meeting was also considered love at first sight by a lot of people. They moved kind of quickly. In 1992, they were engaged to be married. They had chosen a place that they wanted to get married at the Kiana Lodge on Bainbridge Island, which is in Kitsap County, Washington. She had picked out a wedding dress, and Mike Starr was apparently going to be best man for the wedding. But the unfortunate thing was both Demery and Lane became drug users. You know, they were using heroin. Some people want to say that Demery was the source of Lane's initial drug use. Some people don't think she was. It's all kind of hearsay. We don't know that situation. But what we do know is the two of them were heroin users at this point. The scary thing for Demery was, though, she had a cardiac pacemaker and she suffered from endocarditis, which is inflammation of the inner layers of the heart. So her drug use was seriously affecting her health in worse ways really quickly. But so at this point in time that they were together, you know, and dirt was being made, Lane had already been suffering from drug use so badly to the point where he was in and out of rehab at this point. So now going back to more about dirt and how dirt was made. Obviously, we know that dirt was considerably darker in theme and musically than facelift. A quote that Jerry said on the dirt album is, quote, we did a lot of soul searching on this album. There's a lot of intense feelings. We deal with our daily demons through music. All of the poison that builds up during the day, we cleanse when we play. Which that makes sense. I can see that in the music too. Drug use obviously was at the center point for the album with tracks like Sick Man, Junkhead, and Godsmack. Lane has gone on to say that the album is semi-conceptual with there being two kind of main themes. And so this is Lane's account of the Dirt album with these kind of central themes. So... The first theme he goes on to say is, quote, dealing with kind of a personal anguish and turmoil, which turns into drugs to ease that pain and being confident that that was the answer in a way. Then later on, the song starts to slip down closer and closer to hell. And then he figures out that drugs were not and are not the way to ease that pain. Basically, it's the whole story of the last three years of my life. And then he goes on to say the second theme is about, quote, painful relationships and involvements with persons, end quote. You could say a lot of these songs were quite personal to Lane in the fact of drug use, but 
The whole point about that, though, is Lane didn't want his fans to think that doing drugs was a cool thing. And he didn't want to be cited as like, oh, look at me, I'm doing drugs, you should do drugs too. And so he's gone on to say after Dirt that he kind of regrets some of the lyrics referencing doing drugs. He says, quote, I wrote about drugs and I didn't think I was being unsafe or careless by writing about them. I didn't want my fans to think that heroin was cool. But then I've had fans come up to me and give me the thumbs up telling me that they're high. That's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Jerry has gone on to say about the song Them Bones, quote, Them Bones is pretty cut and dried. It's a little sarcastic, but it's pretty much about dealing with your mortality in life. Everybody's going to die someday. Instead of being afraid of it, that's the way it is. So enjoy the time you've got. Live as much as you can. Have as much fun as possible. Face your fear and live. I had family members die at a very early age, so I've always had kind of a phobia about it. Death freaks me out. I think it freaks a lot of people out. It's the end of life, depending on your views. It's a pretty scary thing. Them Bones is trying to put that through the rest. Use what you have left and use it well. And so the song Rooster, famously known, was written about Jerry's father, who, as I said before, served in the Vietnam War, and his childhood nickname was Rooster, so that's where Rooster comes from. And obviously, if you've seen the music video for Rooster, it's obviously about Jerry Sr. and what he went through in the war, and the lyrics imply what happened from Jerry Sr.'s perspective. And so Jerry said, Jerry, little Jerry, <laughs> said that the song was the start of the healing process with him and his dad from the damage the war caused between them. The album cover of Dirt was created again by Rocky Schenk. So he was coming on again and he comes on to do the rest of the album covers. It was the band's idea to have a nice woman half buried in the desert and she could either be dead or alive depending on how you looked at it. Some people were claiming that Lane's girlfriend Demery was the model for the album cover, but that wasn't her. The model on the cover, her name was Mariah O'Brien. And the photo shoot was at Rocky's Hollywood studio at his own home on June 14th, 1992. He actually painted the sky backdrop, you know, the whole scene with the mountains and the desert. You know, he made that himself from clay and foam. And he made sure to leave um, like a body shaped hole in the floor just big enough for her to slip through and to lay in. It's probably one of the most well-known grunge album covers, or should I say album covers of all time, I would say. So Dirt was released on September 29th, 1992. It peaked at number six on the Billboard 200 and charted for 102 weeks. So this was a huge instant success, like a quick success. And it was eventually certified four times platinum in the U.S. and gold status in the U.K. As of 2008, the album sold more than three million copies. It's considered one of the most influential albums to the sludge metal genre, which combines doom metal and hardcore punk together, which makes sense. Some people don't really consider them to be typically grunge um, because they had more of like a metal sound to them. But this album was so hardcore. It was really hardcore, but it's one of my favorite albums of all time. At the 1993 Grammy, it received a nomination for Best Hard Rock Performance. The music video for Wood, like I mentioned before, won an award for Best Music Video from a Film at the MTV Video Music Awards. And a fun fact, 
Lang created that Sun logo on the album's inlay. And so now at this point in time, we get into another kind of scary situation. At this time, Alice in Chains was the opener for Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tours tour. And days before the show, Lane broke his foot in an ATV accident and he had to use crutches while on the stage. During the Dirt tour in Rio de Janeiro, in which they actually played with Nirvana, on January 22nd, 1993, the story goes from Mike Starr's own personal account. Him, Lane, and Kurt Cobain were hanging out. Mike asks Kurt and Lane to shoot him up. And the two of them shoot Mike up a couple of times with heroin, you know. And Mike goes unconscious. And he himself declared himself dead for 11 minutes. So he went into full overdose mode. It was a horrible experience. According to him, Lane saved his life. Mike recounted this story on Celebrity Rehab, the episodes that he was in during their 2010 series, which I believe was series three. This is a very pivotal moment because Mike looked back on that moment and he said Lane saved his life, but he felt like he couldn't save Lane's life at the end there, which I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's just setting it up for the future of what I'm going to talk about. And so because of this really horrible experience, Mike, according to him, died, you know, for 11 minutes. Um, He was eventually kicked out of the band. And he was replaced by Mike Inez, who was a former Ozzy Osbourne bassist. But at first, though, Mike stated the reason for his departure was because he wanted to spend more time with his family. But, of course, that was just kind of a facade. Later on, though, he did say it was for his drug addiction. And, of course, Alice in Chains joined the 1993 summer Lollapalooza tour. This would be known as the last major tour that the band ended up playing with Lane as well because of his own drug addiction. So that wraps up the dirt chapter of this podcast. Let me take one more drink of water. So now we're going back to a less, (laughs) like a more chill album, but it is an EP. We all know it as the Jar of Flies EP. Here's another chill acoustic EP. It's just funny, like, they just wanted to do this. And so I like that they had no fear in what they wanted to do. This is what they really felt like they needed to do. And so after all of the dirt tours were over, the band went back to Seattle and found that they were actually evicted from their residence. The band now moved into the London Bridge Studios. And during their Lollapalooza shows, Jerry actually called up record producer Toby Wright with an idea to collaborate on new material. And so Toby agreed, and he booked 10 days at the studio with the band. Sean Kinney has said about this Jarflies EP, quote, After playing loud music for a year, we'd come home, and the last thing we wanted to do was crank up the amps right away. That stuff was written on buses and whenever we had downtime. We did Jarflies to see how it was to record with Mike Inez. We just went into the studio with no songs written to check out the chemistry. It all fell into place. The sounds and the tones were really good. We thought it would be a waste not to put that material out. They started recording Jar of Flies on September 7th, 1993. The sessions lasted about 14 to 18 hours a day. And it was such a quick turnaround time. It was completed within a week. So they used up seven out of the 10 days that they were given. And they're like, all right, this is how it's going to be. We're going to record as much as we can in one day. Which is crazy. That just shows how much dedication they have to this, that they're willing to work that hard, which I respect. 
And they really stressed with this EP that they really wanted it to have as natural of an acoustic sound as possible. Just like sap, you know, no electrics, no fancy schmancy editing, like no nothing. And because of this sound, the album is considered a continuation of their sap EP. So the title for Jar of Flies came from a science experiment that Jerry had while at school in third grade. This experiment is kind of weird and interesting, but the experiment was keeping two jars of flies alive and maintaining that. So one jar of flies would be overfed and the other would be underfed. According to Jerry, the report was that the flies that were overfed reproduced quickly but died from overcrowding and the underfed flies lived the longest. And Lane was like, I don't understand that necessarily, the meaning behind it, but I guess it impacted Jerry a lot, so <laughs> that's where Jar of Flies came from. I personally happen to think that Jar of Flies is really cool as a concept, but also the album cover's really different. I quite like it a lot, to be honest. And again, Rocky Schenk is back, and he worked on this album cover. And it was shot in his dining room on September 8th, 1993. A quote from Rocky on the idea of the cover is this, quote, The band had come up with the idea for the title and wanted the cover to be a young boy looking into a jar filled with flies. I remember they asked me to use crazy colors in the shot, so I utilized lots of different gels over the lights to achieve the final look. Rocky's assistant for this photo shoot took several trips to the nearby horse stable where he caught hundreds of flies with a butterfly net. Jar of Flies was released on January 25th, 1994. The album had two singles, No Excuses and I Stay Away. They both had music videos, of course. No Excuses reached number one on the mainstream rock chart from Billboard. And a quote from Jerry on the success of Jar of Flies is, quote, We couldn't believe that it did so well, and that the success of Jar of Flies showed us that we could do what we liked and that other people would like it too. Jar of Flies reached number one on the Billboard 200. The initial sales was over 141,000 copies and it has since been certified triple platinum, which is crazy considering it's just an acoustic EP. And it received two Grammy nominations for Best Hard Rock Performance for I Stay Away and Best Recording Package. Unfortunately, though, this is where things, again, take a very dark turn for Lane Staley. After its release, Lane entered rehab again for his heroin addiction. And also, in 1994, he and Demery had drifted apart and broke off their engagement. The band was scheduled to tour that summer with Metallica, Suicidal Tendencies, Danzig, and Fight. They were also scheduled to play the Woodstock 94 Festival, but they had to pull out of these shows during the rehearsal due to Lane's relapse. So unfortunately, due to his really worsening condition, the band had to cancel all the shows. And unfortunately, because of Lane's serious drug addiction, the band was put on hiatus. How's everyone doing? <laughs> We're uh, halfway through the podcast. There's just a couple more sections to go through with Alice in Chains. I, I told you there's a lot in here. But at this point in time, when the band went on hiatus, Lane joined the highly acclaimed grunge supergroup that would turn into Mad Season. His drug use was becoming more widely talked about among fan and music communities due to the physical changes he underwent due to his addiction. The band featured Pearl Jam guitarist Mike McCready, bassist John Saunders from The Walkabouts, and drummer Barrett Martin from The Screaming Trees. Mad Season released only one album called Above, but it's a highly acclaimed album. Lane provided the lead vocals, of course, and the album spawned a number two on the mainstream rock chart single For River of Deceit. 
Above was recorded in a week at the Bad Animal Studio in Seattle and was released on March 14, 1995. Mad Season came about from the mind of Mike McCready following a stint in rehab that he had in 1994 during Pearl Jam's Vitalogy album. He hoped that this would help Lane out by Lane being around other sober musicians to show him that he could get sober if he really tried and really wanted to. Like, he could do it. So that was Mad Season. Mad Season didn't really last for too long. They did a couple of shows. They released one album. That was kind of really it about Mad Season. Uh, because obviously the plan didn't really work. Lane still went back into drugs. So Mad Season disbanded. But now we're getting into the self-titled Alice in Chains album, but is also known as the Tripod album. In January of 1995, the other three members of Alice in Chains were starting to work on material Jerry was working on for the band. And they invited Lane back after some time. In April of 1995, the band now back together went to the Bad Animals studio with producer Toby Wright. Jerry gave Lane the demo tapes of the material that the three of them were working on so that Lane could provide his vocals to the tracks and write the lyrics to the songs. And the album was finished in August of 1995. So again, just in a couple of months. But it took a bit longer for the album to come about because Lane was really really down in his drug addiction. In a quote from Jerry and Lane on recording this album, this is Jerry's quote here. Jerry said, It was often depressing and getting it done felt like pulling hair out, but it was the effing coolest thing. And I'm glad to have gone through it. I will cherish the memory forever. And then Lane says, quote, I'll cherish it forever too, just because this one I can remember doing. He was trying to be funny, but uh, it's kind of sad to think about too, you know? But in the studio, a rough cut of the song Grind was leaked to the radios, and it actually received major airplay. So a quote from Lane on the album is, quote, I just wrote down whatever was on my mind. So a lot of the lyrics are really loose. If you asked me to sing the lyrics to probably any one of them right now, I couldn't do it. I'm not sure what they are because they're still that fresh. For a long time, I let problems and sour relationships rule over me instead of letting the water roll off my back. I thought it was cool that I could write such dark, depressing music. But then instead of being therapeutic, it was starting to drag on and kept hurting. This time, I just felt, F it. I can write good music. And if I feel easy and I feel like laughing, I can laugh. There's no huge, deep message in any of the songs. It was just what was going on in my head right then. We had good times and we had bad times. We recorded a few months of being human. That is a deep quote. I gotta say, that's quite a poignant quote. I like that quote a lot. So the album, like I mentioned, it's self-titled as Alice in Chains, but it's known in the community as the Tripod Album because of the three-legged dog on the album. The album cover and the idea for the album cover with the dog was inspired by a three-legged dog that used to terrorize Sean Kinney and chase him around during his paper route as a child. And Sean also designed the artwork for the album, which is extremely impressive. So this was all Sean's idea. And again, Rocky Schenk was brought back and he photographed a three-legged dog for the cover at a playground near LA on August 23rd, 1995. Rocky did some castings for a three-legged dog at the shoot but the band went with the facts that they got of a three-legged dog. Like, I don't know if some random person just sent them a fax of a three-legged dog and they were like, oh yeah, that's the one. And they did pick that photo because they thought it was grittier. 
But Sean really was not happy about that decision because they spent a lot of money on the photo shoot and they didn't use any of those photos for the album cover. But a different three-legged dog named Suzanne was used in the music video for Grind. And so uh, poor Sean Kinney. (laughs) They didn't use any of those for the album cover. To help promote the album, though, the record label asked the band to do what's called an electronic press kit where... The label gives them money to kind of sit down and talk about themselves and the album to promote it. You know, this was very normal in the 90s at this time. But the band was like, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) So this is where the Nona tapes, which is a mockumentary of the band. So the band took the money that the label gave them and they made this mockumentary. It features Jerry dressed as a female journalist named Nona Weisbaum. And she was uh, interviewing the rest of the band They were playing fictionalized versions of themselves during a car ride in Seattle. The music video for Grind was featured at the end, so the label should have been happy with that. Like, all right, at least they put Grind at the end there, but oh my god. The label were so pissed with this decision that they did. The the label was like, you wasted our money. Like, we gave you this money and you wasted it. What the hell? But it became a hit. People loved it. They laughed at it. They were like, oh my God, this is so funny that they're making fun of themselves for this. It's so great. And the label being like, oh, okay, people actually like this. Cool. Let's sell it then. But the band was like, nope, you're not selling this. What do you mean? (laughs) So it's just funny, like how the whole scenario played out. But the Nona tapes was eventually released on VHS in December of 1995. So the label sold it anyway, but what can you do? At least they had their fun with the money that the label gave them. That's all you can really hope for. The album was released on November 7th, 1995, and it really wasn't as successful as Dirt, um, but it did went to number one on the Billboard 200, and it has since been certified as double platinum, so while it wasn't as successful as their other albums, it's still a really, really, really good album. And of course, the band decided to not tour this album because of Lane Staley's major drug issues, which again, you know, it only fueled the rumors of drug addiction from Lane, you know, from fans. They were speculating what's going on. Why isn't the band touring? You know, they just put out an album and they're not touring it. But the singles Grind and Again were nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance. And so now I'm adding a little side note here about their MTV Unplugged show and a couple of their final shows that they performed together as Alice in Chains before I get into some really, really heavy stuff. So the band came out on April 10th, 1996 to perform their first concert in two and a half years for MTV Unplugged. So the live album of the show was released in July 1966, and it debuted at number three on the Billboard 200. So for a live album, again, that's hugely successful. The band also performed on The Late Show with David Letterman on May 10th, 1996, performing the songs Again and We Die Young. And they also performed four shows with the original Kiss lineup of their 96-97 Alive Worldwide Tour. And this is known to be Lane Staley's final performance on July 3rd, 1996 in Kansas City, Missouri. And it's out there on YouTube if you want to watch it. After the show, though, Lane was found unresponsive after he overdosed on heroin. And he was taken to the hospital. Although he recovered, this forced the band to go on another hiatus. 
we're getting into the part in Lane's life that isn't really well known because he became quite reclusive at this point in time after the shows in 1996 and when the band went on hiatus. He wasn't going out a lot. He wasn't talking to a lot of people. He wasn't letting anyone really talk to him. Like he was kind of shutting people out of his life and he was spiraling major. And a big reason why he was spiraling so hard was his ex-fiance Demery, she herself died of a drug overdose on October 29th, 1996. And it's it's been cited by a lot of people that her death was a major factor for Lane's extremely reclusive behavior from this point on the rest of his life. Like, he never got over her death. He loved her so much that her death was like the nail in the coffin for him, if you will, to be honest. Demery's story is quite sad, too, to be honest. Like I mentioned before, she had a lot of issues with her heart already. So her drug addiction was just compounding those those issues on a major scale. Uh, she had been in and out of hospitals for years. And even at one point, she had open heart surgery in 1994. That's mind-blowing. She went in and out of rehab several times, but it apparently never worked for her. It got to a point where she was so desperate for, the, for these drugs that she was at one point homeless. And according to some stories, she turned to theft and prostitution to help pay for these drugs. So she died at the Evergreen Hospital with only her mother and her aunt by her side. She was only 27. She was young. She had so much life left to live, but I guess that's, that's the way it goes with that lifestyle. It's fast and quick. Her death really contributed major to Lane's behavior at this point. Susan Silver, their manager, was the one that actually went to Lane's apartment to tell Lane that she passed away. And it was so bad that he was put on suicide watch for 24 hours at that point. It was really sad. Demery had a cat named Sadie that she had. And at this point, Lane took in the cat and started caring for the cat. So at least he had some part of her around. But, you know, it's, it's not the same. But on February 26, 1997, the band got back together to attend the Grammy Awards after again was nominated for Best Hard Rock Performance. So that was a little... A little something nice kind of sprinkled in there. So in April 1997, Lane purchased a three-bedroom condo in Seattle's University District. Uh, Toby Wright actually helped set Lane up at home with a recording studio there if he wanted to do any kind of music there. Sean Kinney actually shared a quote on Lane in the book Grunge is Dead, The Oral History of Seattle Rock Music, where he said, quote, Lane told me straight up, I'm never coming back. I'm not going to quit doing drugs. I'm going to die like this. This is it. Sean has also said that he tried to speak to Lane and see him at his condo, calling him three times a week and going to his condo physically, you know, shouting out to the window, you know, Lane, you know, but Lane wouldn't answer any of these. And that was really common knowledge that Lane would not talk to anybody. He would not pick up the phone. He would not talk to anybody. If people were banging on his door, he wouldn't answer. It was only select few times between this point and his death when he would maybe talk to somebody. Most of the time, he was in there alone. So at this point, because Lane wasn't really doing a whole lot, it can be quite easy for rumors to spread really fast about Lane and his condition. So a crazy one is that Lane lost his arm to gangrene, which 
is a rumor that is not true at all, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, and another rumor is he lost the ability to eat. Again, that's just a rumor that's not true. What is said, though, while he was inside his apartment, he was mostly playing video games. Lane was an avid video game player. There have been um, sightings, I guess, of people saying that Lane would go to the Toys R Us in Seattle and he would buy these games. And that was really it. So we know that he was playing video games, though. That is something he liked to do. So in his time, he would play video games or do drugs or just be alone, loaf around in his apartment. What's crazy, though, is on June 22nd, 1998, Lane called into a radio program called Rockline, and he gave an interview while Jerry Cantrell was promoting his debut solo album called Boggy Depot. And he called to talk to Jerry, and he said that he loved the album. And, like, that was so unexpected. This was the first of what I remember reading as two phone interviews that Lane just called into randomly (laughs) to just say, you know, hello and to talk to his bandmates and stuff like that. So so after this point in October of 1998, he actually he emerged from the confines of his house to record two songs with Alice in Chains. Ironically enough, the songs were Get Born Again and Died. I mean, how spooky is that, honestly? These two songs were released on the Music Bank box set in 1999. And there are photos of this online, um, of Lane. They're the last known public images made of Lane. Uh, And yeah, he does not look good at all. And on Halloween of that year, 1998, he made his first actual public appearance, though, like public, when he went to see Jerry's solo concert in Seattle. He was backstage and Jerry asked Lane to sing on stage with him, but Lane refused. So one of his first kind of projects post Alice in Chains that he worked on or attempted to work on was with the supergroup called Class of 99. Uh, This was back in November of 1998. So this band uh, featured members of Rage Against the Machine, Jane's Addiction, and Porno for Pyros. And then again, the last radio interview and the last interview ever he would ever make is on July 19th, 1999, again on the radio program Rockline, where the rest of Alice in Chains were promoting the release of their greatest hits box set for Alice in Chains called Nothing Safe Best of Box Set. And he made again an unexpected call to the interview. And I listened to this interview too uh, before I recorded because I had never heard it before. I'd heard the first one he made with just Jerry on there. But uh, he still had that wicked sense of humor about him that's just really, really charming. Even though he was going through a lot, he was laughing and making jokes and he really wanted to talk with them. That was the last ever interview that Lane would ever make. And so these years specifically between 1999 and 2002, literally nothing, like not much is known about Lane at all about what he did, who he spoke to, where he went, like nothing is known. He became so reclusive in this time. But it's been said that he spent more of his days either creating art, playing video games, or doing drugs. So Lane's mother, Nancy, said that the last time that she saw Lane was Thanksgiving of 2001 and around Valentine's Day of 2002, when he visited his sister's newborn baby boy. And there are photos taken of that time, but they've never been released to the public. And frankly, I don't want them to be released to the public. I don't want to picture Lane like that months before his death. I That would be so horrible to see that. I would not want to see that. So I understand people's curiosity to want to see that, but you don't want to see Lane like that. 
You don't want to see him like that. That was two months before he passed away. You you should remember Lane as he was in his prime. But that was the last time that she saw her son. On April 19th, 2002, it was actually Lane's accountants that noticed something was wrong with Lane. Uh, his accountants contacted Susan Silver and told her that Lane hadn't made any transactions to his account in two weeks. Deciding that that was really weird, Susan called Lane's mom. And uh, Lane's mom got very concerned and she placed a call to 911 saying that she hadn't heard from Lane in two weeks and to go check up on him. So the police went with his mom and her ex-husband, Jim Elmer, and they were there at the scene. And the scene is a truly horrible one. His body was not found for two weeks. It was said that he died on April 5th, which... Scarily enough, and ironically enough, that's the same day that Kurt Cobain died in 1994. So, that's so ironic, isn't it? And it was said at the scene, there was drug paraphernalia everywhere. There was loaded syringes waiting for him. There were crack pipes everywhere. And this is where the cat Sadie comes in. Sadie, the cat, was there. Demery's cat Sadie was there. She was obviously not doing well. She hadn't been fed in two weeks. It's interesting that Jerry took Sadie, the cat, after this point. So he he took on the rite of passage to keep the cat, which is nice. His death really impacts me a lot just because he died alone in such a traumatic way and he was not found until two weeks later. The toxicology reports from his autopsy came back as him having overdosed from a speedball, which is a mixture of cocaine and heroin. And, uh, yeah, that's it. That's that's really it. It's It's horrible, you know? And it gets even worse based on the story that Mike Starr tells on that show, Celebrity Rehab. He goes into it there. But I want to read a statement made by Allison Chains at this point in time after Lane passed away that I just think would be nice to read. It's good to be with friends and family as we struggle to deal with this immense loss and try to celebrate this immense life. We're looking for all the usual things, comfort, purpose, answers, something to hold on to a way to let him go in peace. Mostly, we're feeling heartbroken over the death of our beautiful friend. He was a sweet man with a keen sense of humor and a deep sense of humanity. He was an amazing musician, an inspiration, and a comfort to so many. He made great music and gifted it to the world. We are proud to have known him, to be his friend, and to create music with him. For the past decade, Lane struggled greatly. We can only hope that he has at last found some peace. We love you, Lane, dearly, and we will miss you endlessly. As I just mentioned, Mike Starr, who he's had his battles too with with drugs, prescription drugs, benzodiazepine as one mainly that he has been known to use. He's been in and out of rehab for, at this point, so long. I mean, just struggling so hard with with a lot, especially that moment back when he was with Allison Chains, that incident where he died and he came back and Lane saved him and being kicked out and then Lane's death. Lane's death had the biggest impact on him because of this story. If you don't know the story, it's 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 really sad. And to have watched, you know, Mike being so torn up still about 
the regret he has over this story he has about Lane. So Mike says that he was the last person to see Lane alive on April 4th, 2002, because that was actually his birthday. And so Lane invited him in. They hung out, they watched TV. And it was at this point that they were just chilling on the couch watching TV that Lane said he saw Demery in his apartment the other day. You know, obviously, you know, it could have been anything, you know, his mind playing tricks on him, or it could have actually been Demery's spirit coming to visit him. But he was convinced. He's like, I don't care what you say or what you think, like Demery visited me. And so Mike goes on to say that the two of them had an altercation where, you know, Lane was disappointed that Mike was still struggling with his addictions. On the other hand, Mike also went back at Lane and was like, well, look at you, you know, look at what you're doing to yourself, you know, and he threatened to call 911 on Lane. And according to Mike, Lane threatened him that if you call 911, I'll never speak to you again. You know, Mike at the time, you know, he he says that he was not good. He was, you know, he was high on benzo and, you know, other things that he was doing. And so he was not in his right mind. Instead of calling 911 like he threatened to, he simply just walked out. He walked away from Lane and he and he left. And as he was leaving Lane's apartment, Lane's last words to him were, not like this, don't leave like this. And Mike said he blacked out after this point uh, back at home. He had no idea. Mike holds, he held, I should say, so much immense guilt over not calling 911 for Lane that day that he was the last person to see him. The thing was, on this episode, Lane's mother, Nancy, was there. And so he said all of this to, to Nancy, to Lane's mother. And she she was completely loving and accepting of Mike. And she was there to support him at this time. And um, she said, though, she was insistent. No one blamed Mike at all for Lane's death. You know, no one blamed him. And that, in fact, Lane would have probably been like, hey, I did this to myself. Mike's story is a tragic one because Mike died on March 8th, 2011 from a drug overdose. So it's just tragedy upon tragedy. He tried to get better. He tried to get clean, but he he just couldn't get over the, the, the grief and the guilt that he put upon himself for Lane's death. So, so tragic. A memorial was held for Lane on the night of April 20th, 2002 at the Seattle Center. And they also had a bigger private memorial on April 28th, 2002. Jerry dedicated his solo album Degradation Trip to Lane, which was released two months after Lane's death. And for the next several years, the rest of the band members refused to perform together as a band out of respect for Lane. Lane's death, I think, has an equal amount of impact on me as Kurt Cobain's death. Obviously, with Kurt, though, there's a lot of conspiracy, but with Lane, we know what happened. And we saw Lane die a slow, painful death right in front of our eyes. And that's the sad part. That's the sad thing about it. He was a beautiful person, a beautiful spirit, very talented man. His light was uh, turned off too soon. We're going to be talking about Alice in Chains after Lane because we all know the band eventually um, moved on and they brought William Duvall in as kind of the uh, lead-ish singer of the band. In 2005, Sean Kinney suggested that the band do a benefit concert to support the victims of the tsunami that struck South Asia in 2004. Sean got really, really enthusiastic support from uh, bands that were supporting this concert uh, from friends in the music industry that agreed to join in. So that's cool. Uh, And this concert happened on February 5th, 2005. Other people that were in this concert were James Maynard Keenan of Tool and Wilson of Heart and Damage Plant singer Pat Lachman or Lashman. 
And a few months later, the band called Susan Silver and Jerry's manager, Bill Soddens, and said that they wanted to perform as Alice in Chains again. So on March 10th, 2006, the band performed at the VH1 Decades Rock Live concert honoring Ann Wilson and Nancy Wilson apart. They played Wood with Pantera singer Phil Anselmo, if I said that right. And they played the song Brewster with William Duvall. And they played the song Down with Duff McKagan. We all know him from Guns N' Roses. And at the end of their performances, Jerry dedicated the show to Lane and the late guitarist Dimebag Darrell, who had also passed away at this point. So before this concert in 2006, Jerry actually met William Duvall in LA in 2000 through a mutual friend who introduced Jerry to the band Comes With The Falls debut album. Will joined Alice in Chains officially as the vocalist for their reunion concerts in 2006. According to Jerry, though, it only took one audition for Will to get the role of singer in the band at that point forever. <laughs> Jerry has said, too, that they actually invited the sponge singer Vin Dombrowski to play with them, but they didn't really think he was right for the band. And also, it's known that Scott Wheeland of Stone Temple Pilots and Velvet Revolver was also interested, but that never panned out. I can't even see him playing in Alice in Chains, to be honest. It just doesn't, I don't know. I can't really see that happening. So, in 2009, it was reported that Alice in Chains' fourth album, Black Gives Way to Blue, was to be released on September 29th, 2009. You know, the fans were, some fans at least, were on the fence about this because they were like, how can you continue Alice in Chains without Lane? Like, Lane was Alice in Chains. Sean has a quote from this time about this mixed reaction that they got from fans saying, quote, look, it's a big move to effing stand up and move on. Some people, the music connected with them so strongly, their opinions, how they felt about it. It's amazing that they have such a connection, but they seem to act like it happened to them. This happened to us in Lane's family, not them. This is actually our lives. We're okay with it. Why can't you be? This happened to us. This didn't happen to you. But this album isn't about that. It's a bigger universal point. We're all going to effing die. We're all going to lose somebody. And it effing hurts. How do you move on? This record is us moving on. The hurting. That, to me, is a victory. I already feel like I've won. So, the album, Black Is Way to Blue, debuted at number 5 on the Billboard 200. On May 8th, 2010, the album was certified golds for selling over 500,000 copies in the U.S. So I would say it was very well received by fans, even though some of them were very mixed. But hey, it was very successful. The singles from the album Your Decision and Check My Brain reached number one on Billboard's mainstream rock tracks. So the band toured in 2010 on the Black Diamond Sky Tour with Mastodon and Deftones. So this tour name came about as a combination of the three bands' latest albums. So obviously, Black Gives Way to Blue, Diamond Eyes by Deftones, and Crack in the Sky by Mastodon, which I thought, very clever. So they toured in 2010, and the following year, 2011, the band announced that they were working on a fifth album. And the album was expected to be released by 2012-2013, roughly. But Jerry had to have shoulder surgery for bone spurs in his shoulder due to repetitive motion from playing guitar. That can wear and tear at you, and that's very, very, very painful. So the album was kind of put on a pause, if you will, due to Jerry's shoulder surgery. But that album came out. It's called The Devil Put Dinosaurs Here, and it was released on May 28th, 2013. It debuted at number two on the Billboard 200, so again, another hit. And it was also nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Engineered Album, Non-Classical, in 2014. 
And so now they toured the album exclusively in the U.S., Canada, and Europe through 2013 through 2014. Um, A couple of other things that they did in January 18th, 2015, the band performed in the halftime show at the NFC Championship game between the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers. In November of 2016, the band released a cover of Rush's song Tears, which was included in the 40th anniversary of Rush's album release, 2112, which is a huge album, huge. And then in January 2017, Mike Inez stated in an interview that the band was working on a new album, which was called Rainier Fog. And this was released on August 21st of 2018. To make the launch of the album, Alice in Chains performed an acoustic set at the top of the Space Needle in Seattle and debuted the song Fly. I thought that was really cool. Like, to choose the Space Needle to perform like that, an acoustic set up there. That's bold. So the album Rainier Fog debuted at number 12 on the Billboard 200, selling 31,000 copies. And, uh, yeah, I've heard from reviews... And from other people that this album was just not really their favorite album that the band has done. And clearly that shows from the sales, like 31,000 compared to the others. It did, though, become the band's first top number 10 in the UK, though. So that's something. (laughs) And it also came in at number 9, topping the UK's Rock and Metal Albums chart. And it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Album. So... There is something to be said about that, though. So while it might be considered by some people not their best work from what I've gathered from reviews, it still went on to do really well anyway. So, oh man, an intense, crazy roller coaster the story of Alice in Chains is. I mean, I learned a lot through researching this, and it just goes to show how absolutely strong this band is not only of course musically but as as a unit emotionally and as people singularly i mean yeah you know it didn't come without hardships with lane and mike star you know their battles and their demons you know they caught up to them that doesn't mean that we don't love them and that we don't support them and care for them and honor them now i hope you really liked that episode this was probably my favorite one to research and to really go in on um Yeah, there's just a lot that went in behind the scenes and with Lane's life and the albums. I mean, I love Nirvana and I love Alice in Chains and I'm so excited to continue this grunge series next. I'm not sure which band I'm going to cover next. That'll come out next week. So thank you guys very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm going to sign off here. Again, this has been your host, Lindsay. Thank you very much. Have an amazing day. Bye-bye.